Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, I have Tracy Conan joining me, and Tracy and I had a chance to meet at a past conference called FinCon. If you're not a money nerd like Tracy and I, the FinCon conference is a conference for money nerds who create financial content for different communities of people. And we were sit, I was sitting at a table and I kind of like, like hey, why don't you come talk to me? Because I had nobody else to talk to. And she was kind enough to sit down and talk to me. And what happened after that just blew my mind. Tracy is a forensic accountant and she's going to describe what that actually is because I don't think most people know what a forensic accountant is. But she's also the creator of the Divorce Money Guide, an online handbook. So Tracy, can you walk us into your world and what is a forensic accountant and tell us about this program uh, and creator of the Divorce Money Guide? Absolutely. As a forensic accountant, I do fraud investigations. So I like to say that I find money. Much of what I do happens in the corporate realm where there are executives stealing money from companies and I'm trying to figure out what the scheme was, how they did it, how much money is gone. I do things where companies are fighting over contracts gone bad, fighting over money and trying to figure out you know, how much money has someone lost. I will get involved there and then testify as an expert witness. And I work in the area of divorce. When we have people who are fighting over the money There are accusations of fraud and hidden money. I will come in, I will trace the money, figure out where it went, and then also testify as an expert. In my work as a forensic accountant in the divorce realm, I was finding that there were so many people that I was not able to help because they are not able to either afford the cost of a forensic accountant or their case um, doesn't have enough money at stake where it is worthwhile to hire a forensic accountant. And I wanted an option for people. And there wasn't anything out there in the marketplace to help people. So I came up with a divorce money guide as sort of a do-it-yourself forensic accounting product for anyone who is going through divorce and needs to get their arms around the financials. Whether or not they think there's fraud, even if they're just the spouse who hasn't been in control of the money, and now they need to understand it before they enter into any sort of divorce settlement, they can use the divorce money guide. I love this. I mean, listeners might be like, wait, and you love this? Yes, I I love this. I'm just going to put it out there. Tracy, I I love what you're doing. I think that this is so needed. It's such a difficult and vulnerable space for people to be in. And yet financial secrets profoundly impact people on so many levels. Can you tell us a little bit about how did you get into this work? Why forensic accounting? I was actually a criminology major in college with a plan to become a prison warden one day. That was where my true passion was. And in, um, you know, understanding more about prison life and becoming a source of positive change behind prison walls. But during my criminology program, I took a class, an elective in the program called financial crime investigation, because I thought it sounded interesting. 
And that's what got me into forensic accounting. So I took the class. I ended up starting taking some accounting courses to see if I was good at it. I was. So I completed my criminology degree, but took all sorts of accounting and economics classes alongside of that so I could sit for the CPA exam. So that's sort of the the start of the career. And what I found in working as a forensic accountant was that I really loved helping people with difficult situations get answers. People want to know. They might never get their money back in some of the cases, but they want to know what happens. And that's really important for them to understand, at least have information in hand. Immediately in my brain, as the financial therapist that I am, I I hear financial therapy right away, right? You may not call it financial therapy, but I I would say we want answers to life's experiences, right? As humans, I feel like that's just a fundamental part of being a human is we want to know what happened and to try to get to a good enough explanation. And what really stands out to me, Tracy, that's so interesting is I mean, certainly, I'm sure people would love to recover their money, right? Of like, course. I don't think anybody's like, no, I don't, nah, actually, I don't want the money back after we figure it out. Like, I'll be all right. They, but they can all, they can come to terms with the fact that the money may be gone forever, but not having meaning and understanding of how it got there may be a bigger burden. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Absolutely. I've got a case that I'm working on right now with a woman who uh, is getting divorced and they have a very successful business that they've owned for years. And she has concerns that her husband has been siphoning off money from this business, really significant money. And we had the discussion at the very beginning about, well, if he is, he's hidden it very well. Do we have any way of getting it back? We don't know that there is a way to get it back in this particular case because of some of the nuances that are going on there. So I said to her, you know, you're going to make a ten dollars to $15,000 investment to have me look into this. And you need to decide that, A, I might not find anything. But if I don't find anything, will that make you feel better going forward with your divorce? B, I may find something and you may have no recourse to get that money back. Are you okay with that? And she said her goal is she just needs to know one way or another exactly what happens. She said, I've been told I'm crazy that this isn't happening and I just need to know. So you're absolutely right how important that is. How often do you hear from your clients? I've been told that I'm crazy. Oh, so much, so much. And so much that when I was creating the divorce money guide, I decided that I wanted to put together an assessment called Uh the red flag assessment Yeah, that allows people to answer some questions about what they have seen in their marriage. I walk them through, you know, how do you and your spouse handle the money? Who's bringing in the money? Some of the control issues surrounding it. And then have you seen these types of things? I have a laundry list of things that I ask people to check off if they've noticed any of these things in their marriage. When they're done with the 15 questions, I tell them how likely it is that there is fraud in the marriage financial fraud, because so many people have been told you're making it up. You're nitpicking. You're just trying to find something to blame me for. You're crazy. Well, of course, if someone is hiding the money, they're going to tell their spouse you're crazy. It's not happening. So how do I give someone an objective way to evaluate whether these signs that they think they're seeing are a big deal or not? And do you use the words uh, financial abuse in your work or line of work? I use financial infidelity and financial abuse. And those two things for me 
have a lot of overlap. They're not exactly the same thing, but there is a lot of overlap there. Great. So I, I use those words as well. Can you describe how do you define those two words and then how do you see them intersecting together? To me, financial infidelity involves any lies about the money, whether that is lying about what you're spending the money on, concealing what you're spending money on, um, going outside of your agreements that you have as a couple for how money is going to be spent or what it can be spent on or how much we're going to spend. That's financial infidelity. Spending money in a way that your spouse wouldn't approve of, like maybe on drugs or gambling, things like that. All that is in the financial infidelity bucket. In the financial abuse bucket, we have, to me, uh, using the money as a means to control someone else. And that might be not allowing them to spend money or you know, questioning them about money, giving them a hard time about how they're spending money, withholding money from them. Um, maybe your spouse is the person who is the, uh, the main breadwinner and using that fact to torture them in some way is part of financial abuse as well. So, so we always think about the financial abuse in terms of the person who is without the money, but financial abuse can happen to the person who is the one bringing in the money and has, um, has that agency there. So, so that's the financial abuse piece. You're pointing out a really important nuance and I think I missed it. So the person with the money, the breadwinner position, can be the abused? Is that what you're saying? They can be, for sure, because they can be, um, you know, made to feel guilty for being the breadwinner, made to feel uh, coerced into spending money uh, on things they don't want to spend it on because it, it, it can get super interesting, right? Well, this actually, I really appreciate you highlighting this because I, I have had my clients and I'm thinking of male clients right now, and I know I have female breadwinning clients as well. So it, it is, this is not gender specific, but just the clients that are coming to my mind. One of their biggest complaints with their spouses that left them is that their spouse was just continually spending and spending no matter what they did or said they could not, their partner would not stop spending. And they're like, this is not sustainable for me. I, I am making more and more money. And the more money I make, the faster you spend. And that is a form of abuse. And and I've had, you know, female clients who have been in the position of being the main breadwinner who have said, my husband treats me like an ATM. Mm. It's happened on, for, it happens for both genders. I think that due yes. to gender roles, we still see men more often being the main breadwinners and more often being in control of the money. Uh, but it's, right. it's certainly a shifting in that regard. It's a big shift, especially, yeah, in, in the Gen X and below uh, population. So, it, yeah, there's so much distress that happens for couples around that. Who's making the money, what that means, what that represents. The person that's maybe staying at home or has a quote-unquote lesser job, That even that whole framing is problematic in many it ways. It sure is. But you know, society values different jobs differently. Yes. It, it is what it is. It can't, we're not going to change that. Well, I, I'm not going to change it at least. But this is that, would you say that that's also part of the dynamic that can lead into the financial deception that you're working through? And I, I distracted us from where the intersection of financial infidelity and financial abuse. So maybe I need to bring us back there first. I think, yes, the there is certainly some financial deception that probably comes about as a result of the financial abuse. 
I think that financial infidelity is a form of financial uh, abuse as well. Uh, it's part of the whole thing. So, so yeah, there's a lot of overlap there that I'm trying to help spouses uh, navigate sorting out the facts. I don't do the therapy like you do, but I'm certainly an important part of the whole process as I see it because I'm just trying to get to what the facts are. Well, you're really trying to cut through the justifications, the rationalizations, the emotion, yes. the who's right or wrong in, or justified or not justified. For you and your, your specific role, none of that matters, air quotes. Right. I mean, you're, a, you're a human. You care about like, the people right. you're serving. But at the end of the day, I want to see the numbers. Right. The I facts are this much money was spent on this type of thing. Somebody else can decide if that's right, wrong, or something else. Right. But because humans and couples are making value assessments about what's right or wrong and making all kinds of subjective accusations without the objective data, it's really hard to verify. Right. Well, and we find, you know, if I said to you, how much do you spend every month on eating out? You would probably be wildly incorrect with whatever your guess is, whether you're way too high or way too low. People just generally don't have a good sense of how much they're spending on things like that, where it's a you know constantly different a different amount that they're spending. In the same regard, you know, if I said to someone who is in the process of divorce, you know, how much do you think your husband could have wasted on his drug problem? They're going to come up with a number, but it's going to be wildly inaccurate because we're just not good at estimating things like that, which is why we need me to go through all the financial documents to be able to come up to a number. In a case like this, let's say there is a drug problem, you know, we probably have a situation where the spouse who has a drug problem says, you know, Every time I went to the ATM and took out $500, you can bet that that went for drugs, right? We'll know some things about the facts of the situation that will allow me to come to an act pretty accurate number of what was spent. Humans are also habitual, right? So when they're going to go get their drug hit, they're going to pull out the same amount. Yep. Versus they're going to the bagel shop. I'm making something up, but going to the bagel shop, they're going to get 20 bucks out. That's probably like 1990s where you had to get 20 bucks to go to the bagel shop. Right. But, uh, <laughs> Well, guess, we all use you, our debit or credit card at the bagel shop anyway. Right, right. That's what I was thinking. Like modern day, like no one who's getting twenty dollars to go to the bagel shop. Ed, you're dating yourself. Um, so, is your job now easier in the modern age of cashless society? I mean, we're more or less cashless at this point. Or, like, how is the way that we interact with money making your job easier and harder? It's easier from the standpoint of there being more of a paper trail than there was before. Because we use cards so much, those transactions are there. It, it's a lot easier for me to see the spending of $1,000 on a credit card. I'll know exactly what that was for versus $1,000 coming out of the ATM. We have no idea. We would have to estimate what that money was used for. So in that regard, it's much easier. Uh, but in other regards, it's harder Technology has made it so easy for people to have multiple banks around the world and move money very quickly and very easily. So, yes, there is a paper trail of money being transferred from one bank to another. That's easy for me to look at. But when it's multiple, multiple transfers between, you know, someone who has 20 bank accounts that they're bouncing money around between because they purposely want to confuse things, that makes my job more difficult. 
I can imagine, I totally know and can imagine that you can do that, but I'm just thinking about, wow, how does she keep all that straight? That's my secret sauce. That's why people pay you the big bucks, right? I mean, as professionals, we find that. But just, I'm having kind of like, wow, that's so cool. I know for people that are going through that, not so cool at all. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. Hey, I struggle with that. I really, really enjoy my job. But I struggle with the fact that I get tremendous joy out of my job and it it feels like it's at someone's expense and I have to keep reminding me, no, my work isn't at their expense. My work is helping them sort out their divorce and sort out the fraud that they've been a victim of. And so I am actually contributing to them recovering afterwards. But sometimes it does Mm. feel a little dirty getting such joy out of the work that I do. You know, I really appreciate you naming that because I think as a mental health therapist, right, I'm I'm making money off out of people's suffering as well. And I've felt that split of, wait, I'm taking delight in helping this person and making money off the fact that you have major depression and trauma in your background. Well, isn't that interesting when you think about, gosh, I think I need to raise my rates for my services. And then you you go down this whole rabbit hole about whether that's ethical, whether that's okay, whether it's okay for you to make Um, this amount of money, things like that. And I'm not a therapist, but I will tell you, Ed, it is absolutely okay for you to properly support your family with your skills and expertise at a rate that properly compensates you for it. I will definitely graciously receive that and try to internalize it in my very therapy words into my essence, because that, that has been a journey. I know it's true for many therapists and probably, you know, what's refreshing is to realize it's not unique to therapists, that, that dissonance, that disconnect, that frustration, that there's many people that are in jobs that make their livelihood is to actually, and this is what I loved is you reframed it. My job is to help bring restoration and hope and clarity to folks. That's actually what I'm getting paid to do. So I'm helping them. Right. right? Well, I want to help people. And let me bring it back around to why I created the divorce money guide, because there are so many people who cannot afford my services. And I'm only one person. I can only help so many people. So if I could create a tool to help guide them to do some of this work on their own, do enough that they could get some clarity more than they had before, I felt that would be a win. And so I created the product and said, my goal is to help a thousand people a year get better financial outcomes in their divorces. That's incredible. And I love the tangibility of it all. So you know, can I ask, how's it going? You're making progress towards that goal? I am making progress towards that goal. What I found is that I created some, what I felt were really reasonable estimates for myself about how many units I would sell. And Uh then you find out that those are wildly unreasonable. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Uh What I also Uh found is, you know, I thought that we would launch the product have a pop of sales from the launch, and then have this nice gradual uptick of sales. 
What I found from other people in this space is that what I can probably expect is fairly flat, lowish sales. And then at some point, uh, there'll be like this hockey stick where it will really take off because there'll be a snowballing of all, all sorts of efforts. So, you know, I've got five different methods by which I'm marketing and they each need some time to percolate and take off. And I realize that at some point, this is all going to explode. What's been really difficult is that there's never been a product like the Divorce Money Guide on the market before. So when I say to people, do it yourself, forensic accounting, there's incredible disbelief. <laughs> How is that even possible? And we've never heard of such a thing. So I'm having to educate the marketplace first before I can even think about selling anything. So the good news is, We've had consistent sales, just not to the level I'd hoped, but I enough sales that I know that this is going to work. I, I love your confidence, your sense of resiliency and ability to be reflective and pivot. And that's, I think that's really emblematic, right, of, of our healthy relationship. I think a number of people that listen to this podcast are also entrepreneurs or professionals that have an entrepreneurial offering that they're trying to get going. And They've built their practice and they, they're at capacity. And it's like, how can I help more people? And de designing a program, writing a book, I'm very much in that camp. That's part of why we met, right? right. Is I hope what listeners will stop and really appreciate for a moment is the, the self-confidence and the resilience and the self-reflectivity say, you know, yeah, I set some initial goals and then I realized I was wrong. And so I, I've recalibrated them and, and I'm just going to keep going. And so... What helps you, what's helped you go through that process of what I would call financial resilience in launching a, a new pro, uh, program? Well, ultimately today, it doesn't matter how many units I sell. If I sell zero units today, it doesn't matter. I have a thriving consulting practice that sustains me very well. So I'm not in a position where I need to sell divorce money guides, first of all. Second of all, and more importantly, the people who have purchased it who have done the group coaching with me, who have given me feedback, have been so enriched by it that I know I have to keep going. I know from them that it's the right product, that it's the right price, that it's just a matter of getting to the right people. That's the only piece that I'm missing right now is getting to the right people. I'm the kind of person, I'm like a dog with a bone. I'm not going <laughs> to let this go until I figure it out. So I'm doing a lot of trial and error, but who cares? Again, I do my consulting work. I support my family with that and everything is fine. And the divorce money guide will take off eventually. And I'm so confident that I've got two more money guides and I oh. intend to make an entire business out of this money guide stuff. So yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, you can't just dangle the carrot out there and not let us know a little bit more. So sure. what, what's in the pipeline? Well, the post-divorce money guide just came out. And that is for all of those things that you need to do once your divorce is final to make sure you are legally and financially protected so that your ex can't interfere with your money anymore. You know, all of those things, none of them are super rocket science, but there's so many of them. I have like a list of 30 things that you need to think about doing. Something as simple as change the beneficiary on your life insurance policy. You don't want your ex-spouse to receive that money if you were to die. No one's going to think that that's a creative idea on my part, but it's one of many things that needs to be done. So I wanted to put that all in one place. I love it. And I think, right, I just was completing another podcast interview with uh, Clifton Corbin, who was there in, in FinCon. And one of the things that we talked about is systematic financial knowledge mm -hmm. and how, like, 
there was gaps in his knowledge as a as a young adult and what led him into some financial errors early and how he's had to recover and how that's the energy behind his work. And you know, as I get to talk to so many wonderful professionals, what I start to realize is the whole financial landscape is a one complex ecosystem, amusement park for a more fun analogy. Mm-hmm. But knowing how to get the most out of any part of the amusement park, you, you need a guide. You need yes. support. And you don't know what you don't know. And that's okay. But, Tracy, what you did is you looked at, like, what are all those most common places that people get hung up post-divorce financially? And it sounds like you've just created a systematic checklist of, like, go through this, go through this, go through this, go through this, go through this. I'm very much into systems and checklists. So each of the money guides is a 10-step process. And I've intentionally made it, though, so that you don't have to do all 10 steps and you don't have to do them in order. Because I know to some people, the thought of, oh, my gosh, I have to do 10 steps and do them all in order, that feels overwhelming. So (laughs) I've broken it up into 10 pieces, but do do what you need to do for your situation. But you're right. I wanted to make it those bite-sized pieces, especially if you... Let's say with the divorce money guide, you're again that spouse in the marriage who hasn't had any control of the money. You haven't been keeping an eye on things. You don't know what's been going on. It feels very overwhelming to think about where do I start? I literally have people who have purchased the divorce money guide who have said, I did not know how to get my bank statements. Mm, Wow, that's so powerful. Can you imagine how overwhelming that will be? If you don't even know where to start to get your bank statements, now it's easy for me to say, well, go to online banking, click, 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 and you'll have your bank statements. If you're in a position where you haven't even ever logged into online banking, it's not as simple as it would seem. You know, a crude analogy is kind of like someone saying like, man, I really need to know how to ride a bicycle. Well, okay, just go out, throw your leg over the bicycle, start pedaling, and balance, and you'll be fine. But like... Uh, yeah, but if I don't do it right, I'm going to fall and crash. And that's really what it feels like for people and their money. And I mean, this speaks to, what does it speak to? And I want to say this with great respect for everyone and where they're at in their journey is we're all at different places on the money journey and our level of understanding and participation. And, and if you're in grief and loss because of death or divorce or some other or major disability, and now you've got to come into the reality of money and you haven't, Finding people like Tracy, like myself, that will help come alongside and gently guide you through all the steps. You don't have to do this alone. You don't have to figure it out on your own. And so... It's exactly what I wanted to do. You have such a caring heart. I mean, you know, what stands out to me is, I mean, one, I don't think I've met many people that said, I want to be a prison warden. Right. Straight out of the gate. So that's special. But I think what's even more special is what I thought I heard is you wanted to change the prison from the inside out. Yes. Like you want to get in there and have a positive change from inside where there's many challenges for, right. for folks. We can all sit outside the prison walls and argue about what's the purpose of prison. Is it to protect society? Is it to rehabilitate people? Is it to punish people? doesn't really matter. I wanted to go inside those prison walls and do what I could do to make life better for the people who were there both now and in the future. And if I made their lives better long-term, I also would make society better, right? Uh, Perfect logic tracks for me. I understand. I mean, it was very idealistic as well, but little by little, we make the change, right? 
Well, and I think that's where many of us start is with idealistic mm-hmm. dreams, right? And, and I, I, my general sense is most of our idealism comes out of some earlier childhood experiences that say, like, I want to change the world in this way. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that can be a variety of different motivators and experiences. But And then I think part of the maturing process is also confronting our idealism with reality and then coming up with the solutions that will actually affect change incrementally. Yes. And so do you end up, I mean, I imagine some of the, maybe not your clients, but the, the people you're doing this, uh, the forensic accounting, but will end up in prison. Is that some of them? There? Yes. I mean, well, so some of the work that I do as a forensic accountant involves criminal defense work. So I have clients who've been accused of, you know, major money laundering schemes, uh, running Ponzi schemes, bank fraud, wire fraud. So yeah, some of my clients do end up in prison. And as I'm asking about this, I seem to remember when we were talking at FinCon that you said that you've, some of your clients that are in defense cases, you've actually helped them get relieved because you show that the accusations can't stand on the financial data that you've collected and compiled. Right. There, there are times when I'm working on behalf of a client and the fact is that the, the evidence just does not prove that they committed the fraud that's being alleged. And, you know, we have a certain system of justice here that requires proof of the crimes before you get convicted. Um, and sometimes, you know, I'll be honest, sometimes it is because my client did not commit the crimes other times the proof doesn't exist because of the nature of the crime. And I, I feel in my heart that my client probably did commit the crimes, but I'm brought in to render an opinion. Is the proof there on paper or not? Your level of objectivity has to remain so high, doesn't it? It does. So even if your intuition says, yeah, I know they're probably guilty of this. I'm using all of my professional skills to, to gather that. But if it's not substantiated, then... Right. Or there are times where uh, it's sort of something in the middle where my client did commit the crime. We all know Mm -hmm. he or she committed the crime. But the amount of money that's missing that the government has come up with is incorrect. And I'm going through their numbers and showing where, you know, I'm thinking of a case right now where my client stole money from her elderly, from an elderly man that she was caring for. Um, And he was very well off, uh, which is why probably she felt entitled to take some of his money because it didn't seem to harm him. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, when the government came up with how much money she stole, that amount of money uh, helps dictate what her prison sentence is going to be. So it's important that it be a correct number. There were a number of places where they had actually double counted some things because it was a little bit confusing. So I was there to sort that out, to come to the correct number of what she stole and should have to repay and should have to um, get sentenced for. Which it sounds like in this case reduced her sentencing burden. A little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. There's so much going on in our our society and so many moving pieces. And I mean, elder financial abuse is certainly a topic that comes up in the financial planning community and sadly lesser in the therapy community, but that you use that word entitlement, right? Which is a psychological concept. Yes. And 
as humans, like there's, there's healthy entitlement and then there's destructive entitlement. Right. right? Like I'm entitled to be safe physically. That's healthy. Well, you were even affirming me just a little while. Ed, you're entitled to be paid for the services you render. Yes. Yes. As a, as a professional that you are. And so, right. And I think that's where this word entitlement gets such a bad rap is because, Really, what we're talking about is destructive entitlement. Mm-hmm. But there is, as as a member of society, we have certain entitlements. Some of them are legislated. Some of them are more relationally bound. And I guess that's where things can get wonky, right? Is like, yep. yeah, I mean, we we blur those psychological entitlements over the uh, legal entitlements, mm-hmm. and that's really kind of what we're talking about with this case, right? Is she felt psychologically entitled to take some of this money and kind of made that yes. sense that. Oh, it won't hurt them that much. Do you find that, uh, I don't know, I mean, this is stereotypes, I guess, but rich people are, uh, well, maybe I'm answering my own question. Rich people are more prone to being financially targeted and exploited. But then as soon as you're talking about the course, I was like, well, yeah, but I have a course for people that can't afford my services fully. So, I mean, we, it doesn't really matter how, what the income level is. We exploit each other financially whether you're in poverty or extreme wealth and everywhere in between. Is that kind of fair to say? Divorces at all levels have this issue of money going missing, uh, being diverted, whatever the case may be, which is why I felt there was just such a need, right? If even if you are in a lower income level, you should have help. You should be able to access some sort of help to help you figure out if, the money was handled properly or not. Wow. This is so powerful. So I'm wondering as, I mean, this has been a big conversation, a lot for people to digest. Yes. Maybe as we kind of bring the conversation to a close, what do you think would be a good parting advice or guidance for folks and, and let them know how can they get these courses? You've named them. What's the best way for them to find your courses and, and stay connected with you? My biggest piece of advice for people is that knowledge is power. So getting to understand your finances, even a little bit at a time, is going to help you in that divorce process. Mm-hmm. So that is, that's my best overarching piece of advice. I can be found at divorcemoneyguide.com or on Instagram. And my handle there, of course, is divorcemoneyguide. I love it. So Instagram, I love hanging out there too. That's a great place to connect with Tracy. And then the website, uh, divorcemoneyguide.com. Absolutely. Tracy, thank you so much for your expertise and the way that you serve your clients and sharing some of your wisdom and insight. I couldn't agree with you more that start with financial literacy. It all starts there. That's an important piece, no matter what financial problem you're trying to solve. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Yes. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money. Ed. Ed.